Today's reading is from the Gospel of John, chapter 3, verses 1 through 21. Now there was a man of the Pharisees named Nicodemus, a ruler of the Jews. This man came to Jesus by night and said to him, Rabbi, we know that you are a teacher come from God, for no one can do these things that you do unless God is with him. Jesus answered him, Truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. Nicodemus said to him, How can a man be born when he is old? Can he enter a second time into his mother's womb and be born? Jesus answered, Truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born of water and the Spirit, he cannot enter the kingdom of God. That which is born of the flesh is flesh, and that which is born of the Spirit is spirit. Do not marvel that I said to you, you must be born again. The wind blows where it wishes and you hear its sound, but you do not know where it comes from or where it goes. So it is with everyone who is born of the Spirit. Nicodemus said to him, how can these things be? Jesus answered him, are you the teacher of Israel and yet you do not understand these things? Truly, truly, I say to you, we speak of what we know and we bear witness to what we have seen, but you do not receive our testimony. If I have told you earthly things and you do not believe, how can you believe if I tell you heavenly things? No one has ascended into heaven except he who descended from heaven, the Son of Man. And as Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, so must the Son of Man be lifted up, that whoever believes in him may have eternal life. For God so loved the world that he gave his only Son, that whoever believes in him should not perish, but have eternal life. For God did not send his Son into the world to condemn the world, but in order that the world might be saved through him. Whoever believes in him is not condemned, but whoever does not believe is condemned already because he has not believed in the name of the only Son of God. And this is the judgment. The light has come into the world, and people loved the darkness rather than the light because their works were evil. For everyone who does wicked things hates the light and does not come to the light, lest his works should be exposed. But whoever does what is true comes to the light, so that it may be clearly seen that his works have been carried out in God. The word of the Lord. So our passage contains today what is inarguably, I mean, you cannot argue against this statement that's about to follow the most uh, famous verse in the entire Bible. I'm talking, of course, about John 3.14. And as Moses lifted up the servant in the wilderness, so the Son of Man must be lifted up. Who of us can forget memorizing that verse in Sunday school when we were children? No, I'm talking, of course, about John 3.16, which I don't even need to look. For God so loved the world that he gave his one and only Son, or his only begotten Son, so that whoever believes in him shall not perish but have eternal life. That right there, that's the bumper sticker version of Christianity. John 3.16. And the reason that it's so famous and it's so beloved is because it's harder to come up with a better distillation of the Christian gospel than that. It captures the love of God. It captures the sacrifice of Jesus Christ and the call to faith in him. All there, right in one verse. It couldn't be any more clear. 
But the clarity that Jesus offers us in that verse actually comes on the other side of much confusion during his conversation with Nicodemus. And so this morning I want us to explore that confusion, unpack it a little bit, get to the clarity, and then look at the consequences for us. So first there's the confusion of Nicodemus. Nicodemus is... By the end of the gospel, he's kind of a heroic figure. But right here, he's one of the more ambiguous ones that we've met to this point. He's a prominent person, we learn. He's a Pharisee. He's a leader of the Jews. He's learned in in Scripture. But he comes to Jesus at night. And so we're left to wonder, is this a good thing or a bad thing? Is he respecting Jesus' privacy or or does he feel embarrassed like, like he has something to hide? And the passage leaves both interpretations open. And and just as an aside, one fascinating thing I learned in studying this passage is that Nicodemus, the the figure of Nicodemus, his character is seen in a much more positive light in in the African-American church because he, like they, had to seek Jesus at night in the antebellum period, in the period uh, where slavery was legal in the United States. Because many slave owners, you know, they, they... begrudgingly eventually came over to the idea that their slaves should be exposed to Christianity, but the type of Christianity that they could be exposed to was, was tightly controlled. You know, the message had to be kind of slaves, submit to your masters as to the Lord. That, that, they didn't want to give these people the Bible in their own hands because then they might be inspired by the central story of the Old Testament, which is God liberating his people from slavery in Egypt. And so on Sunday mornings, the slaves would hear Christian messages approved by their masters and those who supported slavery. But at night, they would gather in secret to read the scripture in their own way and to worship in their own day. And so in that, they saw their own experience reflected in the character of Nicodemus coming to meet Jesus and talk to him in the dark. So I love that. I love that I got to learn that. I want to share that with you. But regardless, you know, when we meet Nicodemus, John makes sure we understand he's an important person, a learned person, a Pharisee, a member of the Sanhedrin, which was the the high council, well-versed in the scriptures. He's a teacher of Israel, Jesus says. And he comes to Jesus and he says, Rabbi, we know you are a teacher come from God. No one can do the signs you do unless God is with him. And so Nicodemus has a clear picture of who Jesus is. Jesus is a rabbi. Rabbi means teacher. He's been sent by God. He's been sent from God. And and, and the signs that he performs are proof of that fact. It's a very clear statement, straightforward statement. And to that clarity, Jesus sows confusion. So Jesus answered him. He says, Rabbi, I know you're from God. You, You wouldn't be doing the signs that you could do if you weren't from him. And then to that, Jesus responds, truly, truly, I say to you. So this Jesus, that's his formula in John to say, I'm about to say something really important. Unless one is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. So Nicodemus says, you're a teacher come from God. And Jesus says, unless your one is born again, you can't see the kingdom. And so if you're confused at Jesus' response to that simple statement from Nicodemus, what does one have to do with the other? You're in good company because I don't get it either. Why would you say that in response to that? And there's some truth here, an important point, that, that where there is religious overconfidence, Jesus wants to bring complexity and confusion. Nicodemus thought he had Jesus figured out. He thought he had God figured out. But a constant theme that runs through, especially John, is that the people who think 
that they understand the most are, are actually understanding things the least. And this language of being born again, you know, we're familiar with it in our own cultural context. It might be, not be as prominent now as it was, say, in the, the 80s or, or the 90s, but we know, on the one hand, that it refers to a particular kind of religious experience, Christian conversion. To be born again is to, to hear the gospel message that, that I am a sinner and that Jesus is the solution to my sin. And if you're born again, that message moves you spiritually, religiously. To, to respond to an altar call, say, or to lift up your hand. You know, we can associate being born-again Christian with, with figures like Billy Graham, who preached the gospel and called people to respond, and that's what it means to be a born-again Christian. So a kind of particular type of conversion experience, that's what it means to be born-again in our context. Or, I think just as common is an understanding that that is associated with a particular kind of like social or or cultural conservatism, that, that a born-again Christian is a shorthand for a, uh, a, a politically conservative religious person. Now, none of that touches on what Jesus is talking about here in being born again, although I would say the conversion aspect of it does. There are some resonances of it here in that passage, because in Jesus's cultural context, you could talk about converts from paganism to Judaism being born again. That that would make sense to talk about someone experiencing a new birth. And in fact, proselytes to Judaism, those were the people who needed to be baptized. They were the ones who needed to be born again. But Jesus is saying here to a religious scholar, not just a religious scholar, but a Pharisee, a strict observer of the law, and not just that, a leading figure on the Sanhedrin. So the person with all the spiritual credentials one could ever ask for, he says, you need to be born again. And, and that's, I think, why Nicodemus is so confused. It, it doesn't compute. He, he thinks Jesus must be talking about some kind of literal second birth, since he couldn't possibly mean that someone like Nicodemus would need to be born again in a spiritual sense. Nicodemus was already a member of God's family in light of his natural birth. He was a Hebrew. He was a kingdom insider. He was born that way. And here's Jesus telling him that he needs to be born again. That's an aspect of Jesus' message that's always confusing. You know, particularly to those steeped in, in this notion of meritocracy, right? We get what we deserve. We believe the kind of people, yeah, there's some people who need to be born again. They're messed up, or they're wayward, or they believe the wrong things. The, the kind of stuff for the poor in spirit. But the middle class in spirit just need to do a little tweaking sort of around the edges. But Jesus' message, it cuts through all that. Cuts through all our attempts at ego preservation, all our attempts to convince ourselves that deep down we're not really that messed up, that, that the cracks that we see, that they won't eventually break. Nicodemus is confused, and so he asks, how can a man be born again when he is old? Can he enter a second time into his mother's womb and be born? Nicodemus cannot accept that someone like him needs to undergo a transformation so radical that it could be categorized as a second birth. But Jesus doesn't back down. 
He doubles down, and he adds to Nicodemus' confusion by talking about, you know, unless you're born of the water and of spirit and talking about how the wind blows wherever it wills, and we can't see it, we can't control it, but we can feel it. We know it's there, and and that's what it's like for those who belong to the kingdom. And Nicodemus is more confused than ever. He goes, how can this be? So what Nicodemus doesn't understand and what we so often fail to understand is that in order to see the kingdom— in order to have eternal life. It's akin, we need an experience that's akin to being born. And what was it like to be born? None of us remember what that was like. I hope not, my gosh. Thank goodness for infant amnesia. I don't remember. You don't remember? What did we have to do in order to be born? We didn't really contribute a whole lot to that process. In the act of birth, we're literally just going along for the ride. And it's an act that is, is painful and bloody and beautiful all at the same time. And it's something that we know that happened, even if we don't have our birth certificate. We went through it. There's no more radical transformation that happens in our life than birth, than, than, than being born. Becoming an independently existing human being outside of the womb. It's, it's a radical transformation. We start breathing air in. And there's nothing more radical except Jesus is saying than the rebirth that we need to experience in him. And that Jesus uses the language of water and, and, and born of water and spirit here, highly suggestive of Christian baptism. And actually, one of my favorite commentators who I read this week read this passage as teaching against uh, the practice of baptizing infants. And and I had a hard time following his argument there uh, because I think this passage is actually one of the ones when you're kind of talking about and know people land one way or the other, but I think it's most supportive of the practice. Of course, I respect people who have a bent more towards believers' baptism. but, But to me, this passage supports a view that says, What everyone needs in order to enter the kingdom of God is to undergo an act of God so radical and so transformative that can only be compared to being born. And that can be hard for us to accept. And one reason is it can make us feel powerless to be here that that like we need to experience something like birth because since we have nothing to do with that, it would seem to say that we have nothing to do with this and so we're powerless. And so what do you mean God has to do it for me? Don't I have a choice? Don't I play a part? What if God doesn't choose me? Those are really, 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 really good and important questions. But I think other objections to this radical idea of being born again can come from our sense that that our condition can't possibly be so dire as Jesus is making it out to be. We're not so bad. We've got jobs. We've got families. We've got 401ks. Besides that, we're good, we're religious, we go to church, we try tithe, we try to be a good person. We're Nicodemus. So why should someone like him, why should someone like us need to be born again? And even if we wanted to, even if we accepted that, how could that possibly happen to us? And this is where Jesus goes from confusing to clear. The human situation, according to Jesus, he says, all right, Nicodemus, you know, you, 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 you know the scriptures. Well, you should remember this story, even if it's obscure to us. 
Nicodemus would remember it, from Number chapter 21, where the Israelites are wandering in the wilderness. And, and the book of Numbers is a book that's filled with a lot of, well, numbers, lots of censuses and stuff. But there's also these stories interspersed. And, and this is one of them, that the Israelites were grumbling against God and Moses in the wilderness. And so God sends these fiery serpents among them, and, and lots of them get bit, and they're dying. And so the people say, Moses, please pray to us. And so pray for us. And so Moses prays to the Lord, and, and he, tells them, he tells Moses to make a bronze serpent, put it on a pole, lift it up, and everyone who looks at it is going to be healed. It's a strange, strange, strange story. But even though it's strange, Jesus' point, it seems to me, couldn't be more clear. Our situation, our collective predicament is the same as the Israelites. And the struggle, really, we've seen it since the garden. It's been against the serpent, against the poison of, 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 you know, you want to talk about the big lie, all right? The, the, the big lie is what happened in Genesis chapter 3. Did God really say, you'll become like God? That, 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 that's at the root of everything. But, 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 but that we've all been infected by the poison of sin, a poison that if left untreated will result in our spiritual death apart from God. But Jesus says God is not going to leave the world in that situation. God loves the world. God loves us so much that he came down in the person of Jesus to take all of that poison in himself. And so that when we merely look upon him with the eyes of faith, we are completely and totally cured. Jesus is the Son of Man who will be lifted up on the cross to save us. And his death, like our birth, will be painful bloody and beautiful all at the same time. And so Jesus' message is clear. The disease is that bad, but the cure is that simple, and it's that powerful, and it's that necessary, and it's that costly for God. So what happens to us when we believe in Jesus as the eternally begotten incarnate Son of the Father? We receive that cure through the Holy Spirit, which is God living in us, and so we are radically transformed in God's eyes, so radically transformed, it's as if we've been born for a second time. And that's what's behind those rightfully famous words of John three sixteen and 17. We can't forget those. For God so loved the world that he gave his only Son, so that whoever believes in him shall not perish but have eternal life. For God did not send the Son into the world to condemn the world. I love that. But in order that the world might be saved through him. So our situation is that bad. We're that bad. But God is that good. And it's so simple that it confuses us. But why is it that if I've been reborn, right, that I'm still so messed up? And I want to offer a word of hope here because our transformation... Christians talk about it in the language of sanctification, right? The Holy Spirit doing its work in us. It's a process. We are people in process. Sometimes it's fast, but oftentimes it's slow. It comes in fits and starts. But it's always in God's hands. And it's always in God's will. And so Jesus talks about this as, as stepping out of darkness and into light. And that process is painful because when we do that, ugly things are exposed. Shame is exposed. Things we'd rather keep hidden come out into the open. But Jesus tells us and we look on him and we trust him. He is the remedy. And so the absolute worst things that, that we've said or we've done or we've thought or that have been said or done to us, 
are completely and totally wiped away. And I want to be honest with you, that's so hard for me to believe sometimes. Lord, I believe. Help thou my unbelief. Help me to believe, God, that your grace is that amazing, that your forgiveness is that real, that you are a God that loves me so much that there's no distance you wouldn't travel, no price you wouldn't pay for me, that I am that precious, that valuable in your sight, that I'm beloved and I'm sitting here, I'm standing here in this place surrounded by people who are that beloved by you. Just give me a glimpse of that right now, and I know that I will have seen the kingdom. For God so loved the world, for God so loved David, for God so loved Whitney, for God so loved Nate and Jane and Paul and Dee and Elizabeth. God so loves us. It's true. All of it. Thanks be to God. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit, amen. Please pray with me.